Hello and welcome to another episode of the IAM Month on Cloud Security Podcast. We are talking about AWS IAM today, and I have Ian McKay, who is a community hero for AWS as well as an APN ambassador, talking about all things AWS IAM. When is a good time to use the existing tools of AWS, and when do you switch over to not trusting an AWS? Where do you learn about it? And also, should CICD be used in an AWS IAM context? What does that really play a role in least privilege? All that and a lot more in this episode of Cloud Security Podcast. As uh, you would know, we've been doing IAM for the whole month now, and we have one more episode to go before we close off the IAM month. So if you have been liking the IAM episode so far, feel free to just leave us a review or rating on iTunes and Spotify and share it with a friend who may be trying to learn about IAM. I'm sure they will find some value in this as well. But otherwise, I hope you're safe and I hope you continue to be safe in spite of all the different variants of the Omicron and Megatron going around. I wish you well and I'll talk to you next week on our final episode of IAM for this month. See ya. Peace. How do you get your cloud security news without scouring the internet for hours? I normally just head to cloud security news to get my weekly update on what's most popular in the cloud security world. If you are interested in this, check out Cloud Security News on all popular podcast platforms or on www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv. Hey man, welcome. How's it going? How good morning, man. Fantastic. Cool. So, before we get into it, I know a lot about you, man. I've known you for years through the work that you do for the community, community hero, APN ambassador, and everything. But so for people who do not know, what was your path into the whole cloud security space? Yeah, so I started off in thinking about cloud security, even before I got into the industry, I started off playing with things like virtual private servers and those low-cost server management tools to learn the basics around server administration, the basics around security and authentication, things like that. And I felt like that was a really good way to just learn. I'm a very learn by doing sort of person. I don't really tend to go through training and things like that. I just tend to break things and figure it out from there. And even from there, I moved into the industry and then learned the basics of general administration in an on-prem environment. So that's things like managing firewalls and VPNs and the server and sort of environment. And then when AWS released in the Sydney region, I started to touch into cloud environments. I believe the company I was working for was doing some sales environments at the time, and they really wanted to access that remotely and without any hassles. And so I started to spin up environments in the cloud and I learned a lot about how it works differently in the cloud and how it's not necessarily about firewalls and things like that anymore. It's more around identity and what that really means in the cloud, which is very different. In my journey with consulting, it's met a lot of great people. I joined Partner Network Ambassadors Program where we met, like we said, yeah. and eventually became an adverse community hero for a bunch of the publications and the talks and things that I do online. So maybe the first question to start off with, considering you've had a long history of working in the space as well, how different is IAM in AWS or I, I guess, compared to on-premise. Yeah, it's a very different sort of feeling. In on-premise, you're dealing with firewalls and knuckles and your general basic security. So that's usernames, passwords, usually backed by an LDAP server and things like that. When you move into the cloud, it's very different. Identity suddenly doesn't mean only your user identities, but also mean the components that make up your computer as well. So your servers and your mm. things that aren't really servers, like <laughs> serverless, landers, things like that. Yeah. And so suddenly... 
those servers take on their own identity and they have privilege to do things or not do things. And that's a very different way of thinking. And when you're working in a traditional servers environment, everything is just network isolation. And you can see the, the compliance and that sort of thing is still trying to catch up with that idea of identity in the cloud and trying to make sure that that's correct. Sure, that's interesting. So for people who are watching it, I'm just curious if anyone knew that there are more than one identities in AWS. I guess the whole robot user concept where things could be happening, like it could be Ian credentials, but it's not technically Ian, what I mean. How many, I wonder how many people even know, knew about the difference between on-premise and identity as you explained it and whether they have known that there are robot users as well in there. So since you've explained it, what are some of the building blocks for doing identity in Amazon? Because I think my aim with this episode is also to help people understand just the broad identity space, especially if they haven't started on it or all the way up to they're doing it, but they probably are not aware of everything that could be done with it. So from that perspective, what are some of the building blocks for? Yeah, so in IAM, there's uh, a few things that you need to understand pretty high level. The main things you've got to concentrate on are things like roles and policies. When you're talking about user identity, although we have the traditional IAM users, that's mm -hmm. moving away from that space at the moment. And that's usually termed as uh, long-term credentials. But with user identity now, we're, we're seeing a shift into federation and mm -hmm. identity by a social provider or by some of the major players out there like Okta or Ortho or things like that. And so although those users have different ways of coming into the environment, in yeah. the end, they still have policies that are attached to them. And policies are statements that say you can do a number of things or you can not do a number of things. And this is what we call our allow or deny actions internally. And so right. these statements have a bunch of resources. So that's the things and those resources can sometimes have conditions as well. So you can do X to this resource only when this condition is met. So it's this time or this resource is of a particular type and things like that. And so we write these IAM policies to define what that means and define the rules about how things communicate within the cloud. And so to your point then, the roles, but there are these service roles and stuff as well. Like what are those like, how are they different? Yeah, so we mentioned that earlier that servers now have identity, but even managed services in the likes of AWS have identity now. You can say that although this particular service is part of the cloud and part of what's comes with the cloud, you can still deny access to that service to achieve what we call least privilege in the environment. And this concept of least privilege is kind of a difficult one to achieve and to understand. But basically what it means is you should only be allowed to do the things that the service or the identity needs to do and no more. So yeah. this prevents you from, if those credentials leak, having a broader impact against your entire environment. And it will only impact the things that are in its immediate vicinity. It's like a blast radius con containment uh, sort of concept. Okay. And maybe this is a good point to kind of bring in that, you know how AWS itself has all these subcategories, as you mentioned as well, with sub service roles and like IAM roles and everything is in a world where we are, I guess, moving quite fast, thanks to DevOps and you've been DevOps guy from Sydney. It's also asking a lot of people to manage a lot of things really well. And the scale of it is just going out of hand sometimes as well. What's your opinion on using, say, AWS-given tools for managing identity versus uh, open source? Yeah, so AWS tries their best to provide the tools that you need to manage your environment. But we've seen time and time and again that it isn't always the case. And AWS sometimes breaks its own guidance in this space. So realistically, you should be looking at the tools 
that are popular in the open source community within identity and having a look at what they're actually doing. A lot of the times these tools are trying to fix a specific problem in security. And sometimes these problems are really focused on enterprise and sometimes these problems are really focused on the basics within security. And so most people that I talk to are generally advised to do a mix of the AWS managed tools. And when you see the gaps, you can substitute that with the open source tools or even the SaaS providers. Right. So to your point then, well, I guess you can you can choose to bring in a SaaS provider tool or you can do otherwise. But at what point do you think people kind of have to make that call? Like would someone with, I don't know, five people team have to make that call? Or I mean, I imagine there's some best practices there as well. At what point do people have to kind of start saying, hey, this is not good enough for me and you need to kind of Take, take a pivot. Yeah, when you're when you're really starting off with the AWS tools will protect you generally. So right. you don't really need to branch off if you're a five or ten person company and you have maybe one or two engineers working on this. The AWS tools do do the basics of what you need. Where it kind of becomes a problem is when you experience that growth phase and suddenly you're starting to deal with new problems that you might not have dealt with before. So things like insider threats or things like lateral movement from an attacker's perspective. When you're just starting out, you're not really focused on those things. Everyone is trusted. And if if that person becomes compromised, your company is compromised no matter what. Then there's no avoiding that. Right. right. Also, so it's more of a problem, I mean, I guess a measured risk approach, I guess, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Okay. So maybe in another way, because the reason that the thought for that question was also behind how you have mapped permissions and especially the ones which don't have any API calls in there. I'll, I'll let you talk about the project as well, but what made you go down that path and what was the, I guess, the tool and everything? So if, if you don't mind sharing that story for the audience as well. Yeah, sure thing. So I've recently open sourced a number of tools that are in the IAM specific space. And that's talking about mapping the API calls that you make to AWS server to the IAM permissions that map to it. So you might have seen permissions like EC2 colon describe mm-hmm. instances, for example, and they relate to the API call describe instances within the EC2 service. And generally you can look at them and most of the time they map one-to-one, but sometimes they don't actually do that. So sometimes if you do uh, S3.list buckets, for example, that actually Mm -hmm. maps to the IAM call S3 list all my buckets. And so sometimes you get this weird mismatch. I constantly saw a lot of people getting this wrong and um, seeing some problems in that space. And so I I really wanted to create a mapping that shows you how X relates to Y in that API to IAM space. And so there's a project out there called permissions.cloud. Permissions.cloud now expands to both not only AWS, but also to Azure and GCP now. And you can basically use that to look up how X maps to Y and what are the various implications of that as well. So if there's a privilege escalation potential, or if there's a resource exposure potential and things like that. So it's a bit of a guide that goes above and beyond what AWS would generally provide, which is just the permissions themselves. Right. So would you be able to use permissions or cloud to understand, I guess, if you're truly doing least privilege based on an IAM role or... How, how would yeah. I? Yeah, it's, it's really excellent for trying to go down that path of least privilege. The actual, what came out of this was the generation of the mapping, which is over 100,000 lines. And that mapping really backs this tool that I made called I Am Live. That I Am Live tool basically looks at your environment real time as it runs, either locally mm. or in, and generates the I Am policy dynamically. So it will look at your network traffic and say, this call had these properties against it, and therefore the ARN and the action should be this. And so you can really quickly generate the your least privilege policy. But it's a bit of an advanced tool. It's one for those who really want to go deep on the least privilege and the way that you would achieve that. But it helps if you have large 
large applications, which really is really hard to kind of cross-reference from the traditional, the traditional ways of doing that, which is looking at CloudTrail logs and using some of the open source tools in that space to overprivilege something and then reduce that back after. The so this flips the script on that. Is that why you feel it's a bit more advanced? Because yeah. I think so this takes it back a bit from looking the general way that we used to do this with things like Cloud Trail Scraper and the IAM Access Analyzer recently introduced from AWS was that they would overprivilege something with admin access or something similar yeah. to and then observe the calls that were made and the permissions that were made real time and then eventually scale that back. That's kind of scary to me. So this kind of flips the script in that you can actually block those permissions as they happen and then gradually introduce those permissions. So you start from zero and go up to the permissions that you need rather than starting from everything and reducing it back. All oh, right. Okay. So kind of like following AWS's principle as well, where AWS kind of doesn't give you access to everything when you kick off unless you get a role. So similar to that, basically you start from the point of least privilege and then you're given more roles. It's everything and then you just basically reducing the roles. Yeah. Least privilege is a kind of a loaded concept because... Mm -hmm. There is various stages of least in least privilege. So least privilege to some might just mean, oh, I scope it down to S3 colon star and I'm scoping it down to just the service or I scope it down to just the action and not and wildcard the resource, for example. So there's a lot of different levels of least privilege, I guess you could say, that isn't very clearly defined. If you're doing some of this, it is a lot better than doing none of it. So... It's one of those continuous improvement sort of things. Yeah, and it's funny with IAM, uh, specifically in AWS as well, it's always considered complicated. And we kind of spoke about the difference between the whole on-premise world as well as in the new world. What do you see as some of the patterns for identity? I imagine a lot of people look at identity and go, oh, and I still remember this conversation when people talk about, I have an active directory, I have a domain controller, I'm on-premise, move into cloud, and I, I just want to make sure I have a domain controller, quote-unquote, login with their Windows credentials. What are some of the implementation patterns that you see from that perspective? Because there's an identity perspective from, say, you logging into a console, getting roles and all that. And then there is another concept of identity, which is kind of where it just goes pear shape and people talk about domain controls and active directories in AWS. What, what are you seeing over there in that space? Yeah, so there's a lot of different implementations, especially in uh, user identity, where this implementation can go kind of wrong. Usually people have a really fundamental problem with understanding the roles internally about who has access to what and what permissions they need to do their job. And so sometimes you can get this mismatch about the roles that are, they're actually granted and the things that you intended to grant them. So that's a problem in this space. And of course, securing the boundary is also a big problem in that it's very hard let people do what they need to do, but also contain the blast radius, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, especially when you have public services that are things like cloud-fronted S3 buckets and other types of storage that might potentially be publicly exposed. And AWS have traditionally had this problem where buckets would be exposed to the world and they've introduced so many controls around trying to get that right. But now even, even the buckets started off Secure by default from the very start, it was very easy to kind of unlock that and introduce that to the world. Anyways, has put a lot of barriers in front of that to make sure that that doesn't happen. Because in the end, if it's confusing for customers, then they're going to yeah. misconfigure it. So that yeah. is the general. So to your point then, is there some responsibility with AWS as well? Because how a lot of people talk about the fact that, well, especially AWS, hey, security is the number one responsibility. But you would almost feel that as a 
cloud service provider, and this is not me dishing on AWS, but just trying to get, get a sense of considering you're the community hero, as well as the APN ambassador, where people like you and I get to talk to people from AWS quite close, closely, is the, but it, should we be asking them to be more responsible for this as well, in terms of making it super easy? Because every time I've spoken to someone about IAM and in AWS, it sounds like, oh my God, I just want like, so people try and make sometimes 25, 30 roles, or sometimes they try and go, we only want five IAM roles. I don't care about what else you need. Those five IAM roles should define everything. I'm sure you mix up, you see a mix of that as well. But do you find the complexity can be reduced quite drastically by AWS themselves? They actually kind of focus on that. I don't want to blame the AWS IAM team, but I'm just curious your thoughts on this. Yeah, I think that's evolved over time. I know AWS have really struggled in thinking, the service team's thinking in the way that engineers think versus mm -hmm. thinking about how a customer thinks. And a lot of the times they don't really match up. So you'll, you'll see implementations that are very engineering specific, but when it actually comes to how it actually works in the real world, it's not intended it's not really what people expect and so you can sort of get this mismatch and it's not the engineer's fault they're just doing kind of what is the scope they're, they're trying to requirements and implement them literally whereas when it comes to the ui and the testing of that sometimes mm -hmm. AWS falls short and a lot of the times that's actually because that AWS need to secure that AWS wants to make sure that things aren't linked early and the user testing pools are probably fairly low and they obviously have internal testing as well. That's the sort of cost-benefit trade-off that they would have, and it's it's a hard problem to solve. So they are moving towards more customer rather than engineering-based approach? It's something that they've tried to evolve on over time. They haven't traditionally done this super well in the past, but they've started to really understand and take on the customer feedback. So even though they had all of the controls that could secure buckets in the past, over time, they've had to introduce more layers and more layers. And I'm using this as the easy example quite a few times. So they just have to implement these extra ways to really drill into the customer that know you're, what you're doing is a, is a huge risk. Please, please don't do this. But they have to keep the features there because they don't deprecate features, especially in AWS. And sometimes there's legitimate reasons to have public public facing objects. So it's all yeah. very complicated. I'm just curious now, for people who are watching on a scale of one to 10, with one being not novice and 10 being expert, how people rate themselves in terms of their IAM knowledge or even the complexity that they have. Because I normally find that it gets complex really quickly based on the scale of number of people, number of roles, number of teams. To your point, when you're starting off with us in a startup with more like, I don't know, like less than 10 people, everyone can hire an IAM user and you swing around like, oh, that's Ian. Oh, that's Bella or, the, or someone else. But in a world where scale is obviously quite common, what are you finding as some of the best practices for IAM in AWS, especially as people kind of scale from, say, I was just using IAM users in the beginning. Now I know I have legit use cases, how do you see people scale? Yeah, so I think there's a few good tips in this. Some of this is from AWS and some of this is advice that I wouldn't take from AWS. So things like starting your boundary system early. One of the best ways I see to do this is to use uh, service control policies in mm -hmm. AWS organizations. The reason I say that and not something like permission boundaries is that permission boundaries kind of get in the way you have to kind of work in a bit of a different way when you're managing your roles, when you talk about things like permission boundaries. The SCPs are really simple. They're, this is the things that are not allowed in your environment full stop. And so yeah. if you want to do something simple like ban a region because we never want to deploy into Ohio, for example, then we can do that very easily. And so getting those boundaries in early means that you won't interrupt developers 
And when they do eventually hit those things, they'll go, that's one of those things I'm not allowed to do. And so it's a really easy way to, to get started. Obviously, there's the basics like enforcing MFA on your user accounts, whatever the, the identity system is. So you can start on IAM users if you don't have anything, but I'd highly recommend using AWS SSO. It actually makes things a lot easier. And one of the weird ones is to set up a billing alarm. Like that is the number one thing that everyone should do in AWS. And that's not just for your cost controls, but it's also a subtle indicator that something's going wrong in your account. If suddenly your bill goes up to something sky high, you've been compromised, you need to get in there and stop things, stop damage before it becomes. Have a think about least privilege, but don't go crazy all at the beginning. Feel free to use the managed policies at the beginning and then start to reduce that back into more customized discrete policies as you grow but you can start off with the managed policies that's okay i have a think about things like lateral movement so if x to y and y can talk to z then technically you've got a path from x to z and so you should really think about how that works and what kind of boundaries you want to put in in place to stop that flow of data and reduce the blast radius and there's also a lot of things that adibus say that aren't really recommendations and this is where it's going to get kind of controversial for some people. So Adverse had traditionally said to use IAM groups to sort uh, permissions between a number of users. You can do this pretty well in AWS SSO, but the IAM version of groups, I wouldn't recommend. The reason I don't recommend this is that it works poorly for deny actions. And so deny actions don't really work effectively against IAM groups because groups is kind of a second-class citizen in terms of the identity space. And so I wouldn't recommend using that. I would, I would, you can apply that to the certain roles that you're assigned to users, but not to the IAM group specifically. So I'd avoid that. Uh, and one other thing people use is sort of a get out of jail free card in terms of trying to secure a lot of resources is ABAC or tag-based access control. And I really wouldn't advise that. That's one of those foot guns that can really easily hurt you if you don't know what you're doing because tagging when it came out was traditionally not a secured call it was generally thought of as oh this is good for management and observability and billing and things like that but now that we're starting to use it for privilege and who can access what it turns into this really easy way for compromise to happen and i've done some research into some various exploits in the tagging space that really show how brittle this is. And so I wouldn't advise going down that tag-based access control route. I would really think about that traditional uh, role-based access control or specifying discrete resources in the cloud. So you recommend a role-based permission, I guess, leading with role-based permission rather than the tag-based permission. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think this is push that some people are, are going towards a lot heavier now. But in my experience, it's a really good way to get compromised unintentionally. So you might have the best of intentions and try to reduce who can tag what and things like that. But even services themselves can arbitrarily tag resources and you might not even know that that is the case especially using privileges that you don't even know so a lot of service activation calls can actually tag resources as they go through that or a lot of the creation calls can add tags without having the underlying tagging permission and so it's really hard to control who can access what in that space and so i really don't advise going down that yeah so you can see the surprise in a lot of people as well just had a conference rama as well interesting view on tagging and just to take that notch a bit more deeper because how uh, AWS kind of always tells you, hey man, tag everything. Everything you can find that you've identified. To your point, it was used as a measure for estimating cost, what business unit is responsible, 
like a lot of security folks were even saying that, hey, you should use the tagging as a way to identify if there is an event or an incident that you need to investigate, how do I quickly find out? Although, well, tagging as a best practice has not really been effective for a long time it, in itself. That's a whole different problem. But because yeah. I remember there was these products will come out for a help. We will help you find resources that are not tagged so you can tag them. Like there was like, there were even products for that. But what's your opinion on the whole, I guess, incident response with where you kind of were relying on tagging. So what do you see people do with that? Yeah, so I still think tagging has its space for the organizational management of resources or identifying things like compromised resources and using that as a billing engine or a management engine, uh, grouping resources for specific actions. That's, that's still valid in this. But I think even when you have those things, it actually lends itself more to the potential for compromise because so much automation and things like that have the ability to tag. And when you have that ability to tag, you can also have that ability to use uh, permission-based tags because there is no differentiation between what tag is being used for permissions and what tag is being used for management and cost and things like that. And so that's why I say that there's this uh, problem in the tagging space. Right, right. And what about these uh, other tools that they're coming up with? There's a whole access advisor. Trust, yeah, so access analyzer, trusted advisor has now changed. There's like a few more tools that have come into the space to help you identify, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, where instead of starting off with least privilege, there is encouragement from AWS as well to go down the path of, hey, we've assessed these services that are being used. And I think Access Analyzer does this. Like, what's your opinion on some of the other, other IAM tools that they've added? Yeah, so they're trying to play a bit of catch up with the open source community, to be honest. Um, we've had CloudTrail-based uh, analysis for quite some time in the open source community with multiple different products doing this sort of space and uh, a few SaaS providers doing the same thing. And I think AWS is just trying to get ahead of that game and trying to bring that more back into the ecosystem. Some of this is kind of going against their own recommendations as well, but I can see why it'd be needed for someone who is not at that level of understanding exactly what least privilege is because it's still hard even for the most experienced of us. So they're bringing in these tools to try and bridge the gap. They're doing some really good jobs with things like using the policy analyzer to give you warnings about invalid policies or policies that might not be effective and things like that. And so these are really good quality of life improvements that they're making, especially within the console experience. We, there's nothing here that changes anything about how IAM worked or about how that kind of implementation happens, but it's more advisory. It's more understanding what your policies are doing and checking if there's something that you might not expect. Right. So maybe that's a good segue into my next question then. I guess from a scaling perspective, we kind of spoke about, yep, we can do this, but a lot of talk about the use of CI CDs for this as well and for least privilege. And so I can go into the whole supply chain side of things as well. But with the CI CD and least privilege, in terms of IAM, what's like in that context, what's your perspective on that? Is that should they be CI CD services? Let's just start with IAM. Should, they, should we use them to create IAM? And then maybe we can go from a perspective of IAM. What's your thoughts on CI/CD systems and least? Yeah, least privilege in in the context of CI/CD for me is one of those opinions that's changed over time. I used to think that CI/CD servers should attempt to be least privileged and only have the ability to do the very bare minimum of 
what they need to do, but the concept of the very bare minimum of what they need to do is actually everything in its own right. So when your scope expands and you need to do more things in CICD, it's actually a, a bigger business risk, in my opinion, to slow down developers in the way that they can and can't deploy these actions by trying to least privilege these CICD roles. In my opinion, CICD and the service privilege around it should form part of your trusted environment, just the same as source control repository do. If your source control is compromised, you're basically done. That's pretty much just a fact of life. And a similar thing happens in CICD. And so you should still attempt to reduce the privilege that users have and what actions they can perform. But in what they can perform in your environment, I tend to err on the side more available than less available and just deny those really high sensitivity resources and actions. So protected service roles and things like that, that you can still put deny actions on. But everything else is fair game. In terms of what should actually go through CI, I aggressively think it should be everything to the point where it's it's kind of, we have these arguments about if there's a one-off action, these arguments are internally to the consultancy I work with. If, if there's an action that you perform once, should it be automated? And we have this argument about yes or no, because generally you can just document these things. And if they ever need to happen again, then the documentation will show what you need to do. But when you're trying to redeploy after a what is realistically going to be a disaster at this point, if you're trying to go through this entire thing again, you're really going to want to have everything at your disposal. And that's why automate everything within your environment is a huge step. Oh, actually, that's a good point. Because if you have a lot of manual steps in between the automated steps, you're clearly in a scenario for disaster recovery, just going through everything. Hey, something stopped working. Oh, because there's this document that's there for a manual step that we had to do because one step that was, yeah, I can imagine that. So, and maybe that's a good segue into the whole, if the CICD pipeline is supposed to be on the similar privilege to, like, I guess, similar importance as a source country, do you find that, because there was multiple patterns for the CICD world as well, where one CICD just deploys into all different environments. And there was like this whole pattern of one CICD per environment, the source control. And I mean, there's a conversation of privilege there as well for a CICD pipeline. Where do you stand on that? I'm curious. Yeah, I generally stand on the side of, again, the CICD is a trusted environment and trusted access into your development environments, your production environments, and everything in between. Some of this is actually going to depend on your promotion life cycle. So a lot of people have different ways of doing it. I tend to go on the side of immutable artifact, where an artifact should be the same on dev, on staging, mm -hmm. on prod, everywhere that it goes. And just those uh, environmental configurations are the only things that change. And so that way you can ensure that we've tested on X, the exact same thing is happening in Y. Other people tend to go on that side of okay, now that we've done our testing in a dev branch, we can now merge into the, into the production branch and then just see if everything kind of works together. But I've seen that go kind of wrong sometimes where unexpected things happen when two or more features come together and then they clash in unexpected ways. I tend to go on, I tend to err on the side of immutability where it's possible, but everyone has their own opinions. We could spend another hour talking about all the various ways <laughs> yeah. that it kind of impacts, but yeah, yeah. I, I, do, I do go down that path. No, that's, that's a great intro. And I'm just quickly switch gears to some of the questions that came in. Are there any resources that visualize IAM, like a good map of an ARN, permission and people as they relate to each other? Question, Tom. Yeah, so there's a really good tool out there from the Duo Labs team from Duo Labs and Scott Piper called CloudMap. That's a really good way to visualize things in the IAM context about who can talk to what and that traversal kind of 
uh, way of doing things. So that's a great open source tool by that tool, by that crew. Uh, a lot of SaaS providers do this very well as well. This is one of those things that they do concentrate on in terms of visualization from an entire environment perspective. And you can also do this tools like Forma 2 where look at your resources and find those correlations themselves as well. Doing that map is a really good exercise internally, uh, especially if you try and attempt to do that yourself before you use the automated tool and figuring out how that kind of changes your perspective. So nice, fun challenge. Cool. All right. Uh, thanks. Hopefully that answered your question, Tom. Feel free to ask a follow-up. So uh, I think that's a good segue also into the fact we spoke about using CD and scaling. We kind of started the conversation with a lot of pattern now shifting towards having more federation, more people going towards the path of, hey, I don't want to manage up individual IAM users. I want to have some kind of federation to it. What's like the maturity scale for these kind of things in a AWS context? Because people who are listening to this already have a service role. We spoke about CICD as well. What's like a maturity scale that you think for people to at least start here? Like if you don't, if you haven't done anything with IAM, start here. And this is kind of like the next level, God level, I guess, for lack of a better word. Focus on those things that are immediate threats to your business straight away. And when you're in a startup, generally what that's going to be is external attackers trying to compromise your system and then use lateral movement to basically take you down. So focus on things like backups trying to make sure that you have those copies of your data because your business without backups, if you're compromised, your business is wiped out. So have those backups, have those backups tested, make sure. And that's a really hard thing because there's a lot of effort that goes into testing these backups. Even if that turns into a once a quarter or once annually sort of deal, still make sure that that kind of works and that you understand the process of doing that. So backups, number one, don't focus too much on leash privilege for your own users in a startup phase. That grows over time. You don't have to really focus on that. But there's a whole lot of different considerations in this space. So when you're growing, you're going to think about least privilege, DAST and SAS, your dependency scanning, your secrets management, your incident management, even to the point of chaos engineering and all those other fancy things that we have now. But you don't have to consider all of these straight away. These are very advanced sort of things that you really need to focus on as you scale, not as you start up. AWS is going to protect you and most of the other cloud providers will actually protect you by default from the start. They're just relying on you not to make insecure configurations out of the box, which is kind of hard to do as long as you follow the guidance. And most services will have the best practice in that space. So the guidance on IAM security best practices is a really good place to start to, go, to get those basics. And looking at things like the AWS well-architected reviews is a really good way to think about what your application is doing and what things you have in place in your organization. You don't have to solve all the challenges. That's something like a well-architected roof has. You just have to identify that these are risks. We accept these risks and we'll address them eventually. Interesting. So, and maybe uh, sprinkle a bit of SCP on top as well as you were saying in the beginning. So sprinkle. Yeah, if you can get ahead of the game, it's very helpful. So putting a, the, your SCPs in, making sure your developer roles are not overly privileged. Like if you can get away. She had CloudTrail on as well, right? Because uh, I think the latest privilege would be pointless without CloudTrail as well, I imagine. So CloudTrail, I definitely have that on as well. Yeah, so there's a, there's a few things that you should have on uh, by default and the Edibus guidance will give you that information as well. Things like CloudTrail in, in your environment, just apply it once in North Virginia and have a multi-region included management events. That's the core configuration that you really need. And if you can, use an SCP to protect that CloudTrail and the destination, which is probably an S3 bucket at all costs. So you basically just deny everything 
from touching that. In that way, you need to log into a root account to manage it and do anything else to it. When you don't, don't ever use a root account unless you have to. Root account is for creating your account making your user identity and then getting the hell out of there. Put MFA before you get out of there, but get out of there immediately. Do not use your root account for anything else because that's that's one of those things where a lot of things and do a lot of bad practices in there. So make sure you try and avoid that. So just curious, why North Virginia region for CloudTrail? Why not? So in AWS, North Virginia is a special snowflake region where when we talk about things like global services, it's technically homed for most of the global services in North Virginia. And so things like CloudTrail and management events now are exposed for those global services in North Virginia. And that's why we say to put that things there. You should still have your applications and things like that in the, in the region that's closest to you. So in our case, that's uh, Sydney region. But in your case, that might be Melbourne region later this year. But for those management events and things like that, you're going to see that North Virginia is a special snowflake which you have to consider. And things like CloudTrail should probably be home there. Things like you should consider maybe putting SSO there because of the various implications that that has as well. The reason I'm asking this question is also because we've got an audience which is based out of the UK, Israel, all over Europe as well. All those people may be listening to this and going, wait, so does that mean data sovereignty kind of, because CloudTrail is pretty much audit log of every identity that's out there, right? In, in AWS. Does that mean that's out of the window? So, so when people generally talk about data sovereignty, they're only talking about the data that is relevant for their customers. So that's your PII, that's your customer yeah. data and things like that. There's this general knowledge that a lot, AWS is a distributed system. So things like your customer data in S3 will most likely stay within that region and your databases will stay in that region and things like that. But although, although you should consider your backup plan to have a similar home sister region, if you can help it. Sydney was traditionally Singapore, but it might be Melbourne or, or New Zealand in the future. But within the management events, that's generally a global action. So things like DNS in Route 53, that's a global entity. If you're accessing DNS from the UK, you're going to hit London, London region's DNS servers or the cloud front pops that are close to that, your location over there. So those management events will come in through those regions and you need to be thinking about how that works from a global scale. And that's why that kind of takes effect. And I'm so glad I have you talk about IAM as well, man. You're my go-to person for it. So probably one, one last question. Where can others find out about IAM? Because I feel like just relying on AWS docs probably not is not just in that's And hence the reason you've kind of created open source tools and a lot of other people have kind of gone down the even Scott Piper and everyone. So where do you normally ask people to start to understand IAM? Because there are companies where IAM are whole departments and I'm sure they would want to go super deep into it as well. So what's your recommendation for that? Yeah, so docs are definitely the sort of place to start, but there's a lot of really good resources online. The reInvent and the reinforce talks from AWS as well are really good to dive deep into certain topics. I am as one of them, but you can go deeper into mission boundaries or SCPs or access analyzer and things like that. When it's when you move outside of community resources out there, there's some great talks from both conferences and just directly from educational providers. So people like Andrew Brown put out content all the time to give you an understanding about what it is, what are the things you should be looking at. Cloud Security Podcast is a great example of the sort of resources that you can learn from that. Look up your user groups and your meetups. There's physical in-person eventually. Meetups that'll talk sometimes about these topics and things like Reddit and the Slack groups as well. There's a Cloud Security 
security forum Slack group. If you yep. look that up out there, that's that's really good and contains uh, a lot of us sort of uh, more experts talking about cloud and identity and the things that are impacting us and things yep. like that. Go, go look that up as well. Awesome. And I think uh, Tom made a really great comment. Progress over perfection is a great IAM mantra. I 100% agree with that. So where can people find you, connect with you on IAM and talk about AWS community as well as the whole ambassador program as well? Where can people? Yeah, I'm on Twitter at, at IAWN0036. I'm on GitHub as well under that same alias. LinkedIn on the same alias. Come find me if you want to talk shop. Feel free to DM me. We can talk about whatever you want. And yeah, we can start some more arguments. Thanks so much for coming in, man. And for everyone else who's tuning in, I appreciate you guys hanging out. And we have one more episode for this month before we close off the IAM month, which is going to be next weekend. But I will see you then. And thanks so much for joining. And I will see you in the next episode. Thanks, Ian. All right. Thanks, everyone. All right. Bye. Thank you for listening to that episode of Cloud Security Podcast. If you found some new information from that episode, we would appreciate if you share it with others. Share it with us as well if you have any good feedback or good learnings from the episode. We are on all your favorite podcast platforms. If you don't find us there, you can always go on our website, www.cloudsecuritypodcast.tv to listen to the latest episode. We appreciate your support in helping us grow. It helps us bring more guests. It helps us support the channel. So really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time and talk to you on the next episode.